Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Thank you, Barb. You may be seated. Well, good evening and welcome to Disciples Church. It is so good to see your faces. Good to have you with us this evening. Uh, My name is Jonathan Mosher. It's my privilege to open up the Word with you and for you this evening. And so if you have your Bibles with you, if you can open them to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Well, this week, uh, our daughter, Jessica's and my daughter, Evan, will turn eight months old. Um, and that feels weird to me for a lot of reasons. One, because um, just uh, because rather Evan was um, clearly then born in the month of February, and that was just before everything started happening with COVID. And so these last few months have seemed to just just to have flown by. I mean, uh, even more than they did uh, with our two boys. But it's been fun to see her development over that time. Um, I, I've learned a lot of interesting things from being a dad, but among the things that I've learned is that when babies are born, they obviously have very poor eyesight. They can't see very far in front of them at all. Their eyes don't focus particularly well. Their attention span clearly is not very developed either. And so things have to be right in their face in order for them to be able to see those things. And on top of that, when babies are first born, they can't see all the colors. They can't see the full spectrum. So their vision starts out maybe with black and white and Then when they get to about three or four months old, they can start to see red and green if it's a real vibrant red or green. And then from there, the the spectrum begins to grow out and their attention span begins to increase. And and obviously throughout all that time, they're beginning to move more and more and become more mobile. I mean, my daughter at this point is just rolling around the floor. That's her primary means of transportation. And so it's just been so fun to see all of this development in her. But one of the interesting things about the stage that she's in right now is that she's kind of moved on from having to have uh, big flashy colors or things right up in her face, and she's really intently focused on details. 
So what's, what's interesting is if you give her her toy, and right now her favorite toy uh, is this little toy giraffe that we have, but as soon as she gets it, she immediately starts looking for the little tag that gives you the instructions on how to wash it, and that's what she wants to play with. That's what she wants to see, and that's what she wants to, to chew on. That's what she wants to look at, and she'll just look at this thing and roll it around in her fingers and stare at it and put it in her mouth for minutes and minutes and minutes and minutes. I mean, she spent 10 minutes this week just looking at the zipper on my wife's jacket. Like that's the stage that she's in. She's singularly focused on very minute details. But there's been a definite progress as she's continued to grow. And in a sense, that's where we find the disciples in this chapter. If you were here with us last week, we talked about the fact that as Jesus heals the blind man and as he restores his vision, it's the first miracle we see in the book of Mark where, where the miracle doesn't, doesn't take uh, an instantaneous effect on the man, where Jesus heals him. And as he's looking around, the man says, well, I can see different figures, but people look like trees that are walking. I can't quite see everything clearly. And then upon the second touch of Jesus, the man's sight is fully restored. And one of the things that we talked about is that Jesus' miracle in that text is actually a parable in and of itself. It's given to us as a picture of what the Christian walk looks like, that we are slowly sometimes progressing and growing and maturing in our faith. And we see in this chapter the process of spiritual maturation taking place in the life of Peter. And in fact, in, in many ways, we could look at Peter's interaction with Jesus in this chapter, and we could say that there has been a developmental leap. And the text this week, and the text that we're going to deal with next week as well, is really the ideological halfway point of the book of Mark. So we've been leading up to this moment and the moment that we're going to address next week, which is Peter's confession of Jesus Christ in this week, and ultimately the transfiguration next week. And, and Mark writes this book in such a way where it's really split into two equal halves. The first half is revealing who the Messiah is and if you've been with us up to this point over and over, you've heard us talk about the idea that what Mark wants you to walk away understanding is that this person, this Jesus, is in fact the Messiah. That he's God incarnate. And he wants you to walk away with no sense of misunderstanding in your heart or in your mind as to who this Jesus is. And so he gives us miracles and teachings and confessions of people that are around him. And we see Jesus in all of these scenarios so that we can walk away remembering who this man, Jesus Christ, is. And as we reach this halfway point in moving forward, what we're going to see is what this Messiah came to do. Namely, that he came to die, and to rise again. And so the passage that we're beginning to dive in this evening, starting really with Mark 8, 31, and going all the way through Mark 10, 52, is what is known as the Great Discipleship Discourse. The groundwork has been laid, Jesus has made clear who he is, and now he is starting to teach and train his disciples for what it is that they are to expect in their life, and ultimately, what we, reading this 2,000 years later, are to understand about our faith. So the main theme that we've been studying in this book up to this point really comes into this moment as a very practical question. And here's the question. Is Jesus worth following? Is he worth it? 
or maybe put into a different context, what would you be willing to spend to follow Jesus? Not just financially, but what in your life would you be willing to give up to follow him? Because that question in a very stark and a very real way is the question that's in front of us in this text. And that theme, by the way, of asking yourself, is Jesus worth following? That's always a timely and appropriate question for a church to consider. But I think it's safe to argue that we are heading into an era unlike what any of us have experienced before. And I don't say any of this to be alarmist but for you to really consider what is it that potentially lies ahead of us as believers. I mean, we're walking into an era where right now, as we speak, the number of people who claim Christianity in this country continues to be on the decline. The number of Christians in our country who hold to orthodox faith continues to be decreasing. In fact, a recent survey put out by Lifeway Research said that 30% of self-proclaimed evangelicals, that's the group to which we belong, 30% of self-proclaimed evangelicals say that they believe that Jesus was a good teacher, but that he was not God. This isn't another denomination. These aren't, these aren't people who who potentially wouldn't have been exposed to the same tenets that you and I are exposed to, but these are people who actually claim the very same evangelical, gospel-focused faith that we hold to. 30% say Jesus was a good teacher, but he was not God. Which, by the way, lines up with about, what, 52% of Americans as a whole believe, or at least what they claim to believe. And at the same time that all of these things are happening, these seismic shifts within the context of the church, at the very same time, all around us, this world is growing increasingly hostile to Christianity in every conceivable way. The refusal to recognize God's ordination in issues of sexuality or in issues of marriage continues to be on the forefront of conflict between people who hold the orthodox Christian faith and the culture that's around us. An increasing insistence that all people not only tolerate different behaviors and different lifestyles and different belief systems, but actively endorse what the Bible declares is sin. And on top of all of that, there is a growing fervor that Christian truth and Christian doctrine be labeled as bigoted hate speech. So I ask again, what is it worth to you to follow Jesus Christ? And in Christ's discourse in this text, in his discourse on discipleship, we are reminded of what it is that we ought to expect. Because do you understand that the freedom in which we have worshipped and participated in our faith and the freedom in which we've enjoyed in this country going back some 200 and some odd years, do you realize that this has been a unique blip in the history of humanity? That the common everyday course of what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to be exposed to mistreatment and ostracization and ultimately persecution. And Jesus in this text and going forward through the end of the book is going to lay out what those expectations are for us. In fact, Jesus not only warns us about the difficulty that his followers are going to experience, but in fact, he calls you to himself into difficulty. He invites you into the difficulty of what it is to be a follower of his. These are hard, 
hard words for us. And in that invitation, Jesus demands a devotion and an obedience that is startling to the nominal Christian. But the confidence that we need for our discipleship is rooted in the character of our master. The reason we have confidence in our faith is because of the Lord and the Savior that we recognize as the source and the object of our faith. And that backdrop brings us into Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27, in this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. The conversation, the setting even of this conversation is important and is worth drawing out. Here's what it says. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, just to stop there and point out one brief thing, the villages of Caesarea Philippi were known to be a pagan center. The people that lived there had no use for God. They didn't care about God. They didn't love God. In fact, they had an outward hostility towards those who were followers of God and towards those who had declared their love and devotion to God. And isn't it just like Jesus to walk his disciples into a place like this to have this conversation? And he continues, and on the way, he asked his disciples saying, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist and Some others say Elijah, and others say that you're one of the prophets. I want you to stop right there and think about those answers, because on the surface, we understand perhaps the rest of the story and what's going to come and what Jesus ultimately says, and our tendency is to view the claims that people had about Jesus Christ, maybe even as an insult to the character and nature of Jesus Christ, but that wasn't in fact what their motivation was. In fact, as people were saying these things about who Jesus was, they were saying things like, man, if you hear Jesus preach, it's like hearing John the Baptist. He preaches with such clarity and with such directness and with such authority and with such knowledge and intellect and with such rhetorical skill. It's like hearing John the Baptist himself preach. They intended it as a compliment. In others, if you would have asked, who is this Jesus? Who is it that this Jesus actually is? Others would have said, well, he's just like Elijah. And Elijah to these people was a hero of the faith in a very true sense of the word, an extraordinary figure within the history of Israel. This is a man who had called down fire from heaven on the prophets of Baal. A man who had delivered amazing messages from God to his people. See, when people made statements like this about Jesus, they weren't intending to criticize or belittle him. In fact, they intended these things as a compliment. These were the popular answers of the day. And by the way, not much has changed. Because if you start asking people, what do you think of Jesus? Tell me about what you think of him. Who is he really? The kinds of answers that you're going to get, even in a post-Christian culture like the one in which we live, is you're going to hear people say things like, well, I think Jesus was a good man. I think he intended to do the right thing. I like that thing where he said that we should turn the other cheek when we're offended. I really like how he talked about those things. And other people are going to say he was a political or a social revolutionary, that he intended to lead in a different charge and he was going to lead up oppressed peoples. And other, others are going to say, well, he was just a phenomenal teacher and philosopher. And when people say those things about Jesus, they mean it oftentimes with genuine compliments. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? 
a question that we need to consider for ourselves, a question that not only was so applicable to the life of Peter and so important for this whole conversation, but it's one that we have to wrestle with. If you claim the name of Jesus Christ, if you claim to be a Christian, claim to be his follower, the question that Jesus is asking you ultimately is, who do you say that I am? And I want you to think about that. If you had to answer that for yourself, we know the right answer that Peter's about to give, right? But if you had to answer, who is Jesus in your life? Who does he mean to you? How important is he to you? Who actually is Jesus? What would your answer be in the stillness of your heart with no one knowing what you're thinking? What would your response be to that question? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Jesus didn't want to know what the prevailing opinion of the day was or what the common perception was. He wanted to know, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers in this moment for for one of the few times that we see Peter prior to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's actually saying the right thing and doing things in the right way. Gold star for Peter. He gets the right answer to this particular question. The guy who constantly has his foot in his mouth actually gives the appropriate answer to this question. And without hesitation, he responds and he says, you are the Christ, the Christos. You are the anointed one of God. You are the Messiah that was promised, the deliverer of his people. You were the one that God sent to save us and to rescue us and to deliver us and to bring us into freedom and to bring us into restoration, to lead in a whole new kingdom of God's presence and power. Peter is saying to Jesus, you are everything we've hoped for. And we see, we see a little bit of the fog begin to lift from Peter's eyes in this moment. His vision becomes a little less hazy and he's a little more, a little more accurate with his response. And Matthew in his gospel records Jesus' response for us. In chapter 16 of that book, here's how Jesus responded to what Peter said. He said, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, calling him by his family name, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, the mere act of recognizing Jesus as God is not an intellectual reckoning. It's not you putting together in your mind the puzzle of who Jesus Christ is and somehow coming up with the right answer. This isn't your own intellectual intellectual reckoning. This isn't your own personal insight. This is a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the individual. And this is exactly what was revealed to us in the responsive reading that we read today. The anointed one of God, the Holy Spirit, enables him as the chief prophet and the teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and the will of God. That's the declaration of who the Christ is. So understand what that means practically for you. What it means is that when you put your faith or you place your faith in Jesus Christ, it is not primarily an act of your own cognition. It is not you having walked through the appropriate steps to recognize who God is, but rather your very thought and your very will are being transformed by the supernatural life of the Holy Spirit being breathed into you. That to even recognize that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, that he is God, that he is the deliverer, to even understand that requires Holy Spirit revelation in your heart. It's what we sang just before this sermon. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. 
And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. And the reason that it's important to understand this is because God is too gracious to allow you to take credit for what he has done in your life. He will not let you take credit for the work that he has done. And here's the reason that that's a gift. It's a gift because if you ultimately did something through your own cognition, through your own will, through your own intellect to choose Jesus, then inherently you get to be proud of that decision. I have done something. God, I've chosen you. I've made my decision. I put my stake in the ground and it allows you then to look down on all of those others who do not believe in Jesus. If I can make this decision for myself, they can make the decision for themselves. It gives you a, a, a sense of superiority, a sense of pride, a sense of arrogance over others who have not believed. But if Christ ultimately was the agent of change in your life, if it took a supernatural act of God to open your eyes and to breathe life into what was dead in order to even get a response out of you toward him, then only God gets credit for that. And instead of pride and arrogance, it actually gives you a sense of sympathy and empathy for those who do not know Jesus Christ. Because had God not loved you first, you still would not love him. In other words, it leads you to a heart of evangelism, a heart of concern, a heart of care for those who do not know Jesus. And secondly, the reason it's important is because if you were somehow able to gain your own salvation, then you would therefore be able to lose your own salvation. And understand it in the words of an author who's not coming to mind immediately. If I was able to lose my own salvation, I inevitably would lose it. I am broken enough in my heart, in my mindset, in my thought, in my spirit, that if I was capable of losing my salvation, inevitably I would lose it. Verse 30, and Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, just real briefly, we'll touch on that. I mean, we've talked a lot about the idea that at various points, Jesus has talked to different people and said, please don't share what I've just shared with you with anybody else. Please don't talk about this. And maybe that's the same thing that Jesus is doing here, that the time had just not yet come, that, that he wasn't ready for the whole world to know that he, in fact, was the Messiah. And so once again, he gives this instruction, but perhaps as well, because of Peter's limited understanding of what it meant that Jesus actually was the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus didn't want them running off half-cocked with, with partial explanations of who he was, messing things up further. Understand the disciples' view is still limited. And so even though Peter understands in this moment, Jesus, you are the Christ, he still doesn't have the full picture, right? He's like my daughter, focusing on the tag and missing sight of the whole giraffe, And that's what we see next in verse 31. And he began to teach them. This is Jesus teaching the disciples directly. He began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things. Notice the word, must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. See, Jesus starts to explain to the disciples in no uncertain terms what it means for him to be the Messiah. 
And he refers to himself by one of his favorite monikers, son of man, which comes from Daniel chapter 7. It's one of the ways that Jesus loved to refer to himself. And the understanding of the son of man in the Jewish mindset was that this was, in fact, the divine king. This was the Messiah himself. This was the one who was going to come exonerate the oppressed peoples of Israel. He was going to lead them into greatness, into independence, into freedom. He was going to establish God's holy kingdom on earth itself. But Jesus comes in this moment with a very different message than the one they expected to hear. Because he says, you need to understand the Son of Man is here, but, but he must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the religious establishment. He must, he must ultimately be killed and rise again three days later. And the disciples are hearing this, not grasping what the words were that were coming out of Jesus' mouth. Jesus says, I'm a king and I've come, I'm coming as a king, but not like one that you've ever seen. I'm going to bring salvation and I'm going to bring freedom, but I'm going to do that by being rejected and tortured and killed. And before this moment, none of Jesus' followers had connected the idea of the Son of Man to suffering. Even though the Old Testament descriptions are rife with those connections. See, this is the problem for Peter. He's just confessed that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's just confessed that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the anointed one of God. But Jesus' description was exactly the opposite of what he'd expected. Peter expected the king to come in and, and rule and dominate and impose their will. He expected him to come in and destroy their enemies. And so as Peter is hearing this, he's confused, he's saddened, he's scared, he's maybe even angry. The Messiah was supposed to come to make everything right. The Messiah is not supposed to be rejected by the religious rulers. The Messiah was, in their mindset, supposed to come and commandeer the religious establishment, not to die at its hands. And as if all of that wasn't enough, Jesus starts talking about a cross in verse 34. And they had no category for a reference of the Messiah with a cross. And their minds that the Messiah could not be killed on a cross because of what was written for them in the book of Deuteronomy, that anyone who died on a tree was cursed. It's one of the first things that we sang about this morning, the cursed tree. So Peter's hearing all of this and he's confused and he's frustrated and he's, he's caught off guard and he goes over and has a conversation with the disciples and he says, do you think we should go tell Jesus maybe what's really happening? It seems like he's confused about his story and what his role is here and he's got all kinds of crazy ideas. I think we need to set him straight. Verse 32, the second half, and Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Now rebuking Jesus it's generally not a good idea. He pulls Jesus aside and he starts telling him, look, you don't understand. Uh, I, I said you're the Christ. I said you're the, the anointed one, that you're here to set your people free, that you're here to establish your kingdom on earth. So what is all this talk about death? In other words, Peter is trying to set Jesus straight about what the Messiah, he, Jesus, is actually there to do. This is crazy talk from Peter. He doesn't know what he's saying. But the problem that Peter had in this moment is the very same one that we often face. 
We have all kinds of assumptions about what God should do and how he should think and how he should intervene and what he should do in our lives about the expectations that he puts on us that are fair or unfair, the standards that he puts forward that we think are right or unrighteous, the expectations and all of the teachings and all of, we've got all kinds of opinions about what it is that Jesus should do or be or think or say. And we spend a lot of time either directly and explicitly telling God our opinion or more often implicitly in our heart, just choosing to reject the portions of who God is and what he said that do not align with what we believe. We take this buffet line approach to our Christianity. I want some of that and I don't want that and I'm never going to touch that and I want extra portions of that. That's my God. I'm going to kind of construct him in my own mindset so that he aligns with the way I think and ultimately my God is going to believe a lot like I do. See, what part of who God is or what he's said is uncomfortable for you? One of the things that God has potentially called you to do that maybe for weeks or months or years you have been pushing down in your soul. God, you're not Lord of that part of my life. Your role in my life ends on Sunday. What I do throughout the week is my own business. What part of God's teaching makes you just uncomfortable and cringe to hear you go, God, boy, I, I don't know, this seems antiquated to me. Your teaching in this text, it doesn't line up with what I see in the world around me, and it doesn't seem like what I would expect a sympathetic God to believe or say or do. So I don't think I'm going to believe that anymore. It's ultimately what Peter is doing in this moment. But turning and seeing his disciples, verse 33, Jesus rebukes Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Jesus surmises what's happening around him, and he looks over, not directly at Peter, but he looks at his disciples. He knows that they're all thinking the same thing that Peter is thinking. And then he turns and looks at Peter, whom he had just given a gold star to for his great answer about who he actually was. And Peter, at this point, must get whiplash. Because now the same Jesus who had just congratulated him says, get behind me, Satan. And we're told that Jesus rebukes him. That word rebuke is a strong word when we find it in Scripture. It's the same word, in fact, that Jesus uses, uh, that, that is references how Jesus responded earlier to the demons. In other words, Jesus is taking the same approach to Peter, both in the specific language that he uses and the manner in which he says it, that he did to Satan himself and the demons. Why such harsh words? Why not a simple correction? Do you remember back to when we talked about the temptation of Jesus Christ? It was very early on in this series, and we talked about the fact that one of the very first things that happens in Jesus's ministry immediately after his baptism is that the Holy Spirit drives him out into the wilderness to be tempted. And while he's there, Satan comes to him and says, if you do this, I will give you this. If you bow down and worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. If you turn this, this bread into, or rather this stone into bread, your, your hunger will be satiated. And he puts before Jesus all of these various temptations. And the particular temptation 
that this is reminiscent of here is when Satan comes and says, you bow down and worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. In other words, Satan was just fine with the idea that Jesus came as king. He knew who he was was dealing with. It wasn't news to Satan that this was in fact the Messiah. In fact, every time you see Jesus interacting with the demons, the demons have a much better understanding of who he is than the disciples do. They never doubt or question or wonder who it is that they're dealing with. See, Satan was just fine with the idea that Jesus was going to come as king, but what he wanted to do was try to derail Jesus. Why can't you just be king of all these kingdoms without going through all that suffering, Jesus? Doesn't that sound great? Imagine, I could just give you all of these kingdoms. See, Jesus was going to defeat all of the evil and the injustice in the world, but he was going to do that by means of the cross, not by means of a throne. Satan, in his attempt to derail Jesus, says, I don't care if you end up in the same place. I want you to do it in a different way. Ignore God's will. Ignore what he's put in front of you. Just do it this way instead. And Peter, inadvertently and with even good intentions, does the very same thing right here. When you try to tell God who he is and you try to tell God what to do, that is, in essence, satanic. It is the essence of who Satan was prior to the fall, declaring about himself his own greatness, his own superiority to God, trying to put himself in the place of God. Once again, we ask the question, how often do we do the very same thing? Jesus, I'm fine with worshiping you, and I'm fine with doing these things that you tell me to do, but I'm even fine with telling people about you so long as you leave me in control of this element of my life. So long as you continue to meet my expectations regarding how my family looks. If my kids turn out okay, I'll continue to worship you. If my job goes well in a time of economic uncertainty, I'll continue to worship you. If I have my freedoms, I'll continue to trust you. And the question, of course, that we have to ask is ultimately, who is Jesus? Is he the Christ? Is he God? Or is he something less than that? Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, understand this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus says, if you want to know what it looks like to follow me, I'm going to lay it out very clearly for you. He says, first, you need to deny yourself. Now, I don't think Jesus means this in the stoic sense where we avoid all pleasures and avoid all good things and avoid all the good gifts of this life. God gives us all of those good gifts as a reminder of his goodness. He gives us good things, things that ultimately draw our hearts into worship of him, things that arrest our attention towards him, things that remind us of who our God is. So Jesus isn't saying deny any pleasures. What he says ultimately is actually something far more intense Deny yourself. Everything we are naturally is about building ourselves up. 
I want to look good and I want to appear competent and I want people to respect me and I want to have a certain amount of comfort in life. I want to be wealthy. I want to be successful. I want to be honorable. I want to have, I want to, I want to, I want to. And ultimately, do you understand what all of that is at its very root? It is an attempt to construct your own religion. I will find my value, I'll find my worth, I'll find happiness, I'll find lasting joy if these particular elements are in place. But when you recognize Jesus for who he is, you no longer get to set the terms of your own life or discipleship. When Jesus says to you, deny yourself, what he's saying is, I want you to write me a blank check for your life. where God himself gets to fill in the blank and tell you what he wants. Where you say everything that I am and everything about me and every gift I have and every skill that I have and where you want me to go and what you want me to do and however much it costs, I'm yours. It's a high demand. And while it's a difficult command to hear, it's also a simple one when you start to understand and recognize that everything you are and everything that you have already belongs to God anyway. I've met people who, upon hearing words like that, grow very angry because they look at their own lives as compared to others and they say, well, I worked harder than that guy and I did more, I spent more evenings away from home than that person and I invested my life savings to build this business and so why should I have the same things that that particular person has or why should God view me the same way that God views them? But do you understand that even to the extent that you have the ability to work, God granted that to you? It's like the expectation that we have of famous people. We think about, we think about athletes. We think about somebody like LeBron James, you know, a guy who, who by no effort of his own grew to be six foot ten inches. Now, did he put in all kinds of work and all kinds of effort, and did he, did he deny himself of all kinds of things in order to be an amazing basketball player? Well, of course he did. But at the end of the day, he was gifted in a very unique way by God. And in a very similar sense, we've all been given particular gifts and abilities and skill sets and mindsets and experiences that that give us the motivations and the drives that we have. And what God wants you to recognize is that everything about who you are was constructed by him. And that everything you have ultimately belongs to him anyway. And then he says this, and I want you to take up your cross and follow me. I don't think those are two distinct commands. I think those are really one command rolled into one. He says, if you want to know what it means to to be my disciple, I want you to take up your cross, and I want you to follow me. And that picture finds its meaning in verse 35. He's actually going to give us a picture of what that means. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is saying, you must die to yourself. 
And this is the opposite of every inclination that we naturally have. We do everything we can to preserve our lives. We value our life above everything else. But understand this, if you live with the primary motivation being the preservation of your earthly body, you are living without any awareness of a life to come. What Jesus is saying is, would you be willing to give up your own life? Would you be willing to give up your own psyche? By which I mean the identity that, that makes you who you are in your own mind, that makes you valuable in your own mind. Are you willing to give that? Or by some means, are you trying to find your worth and your value in who you are or what you do? And so here's what he's saying. Don't build your identity by gaining things in this world. And that's how we typically think of it. If I can gain this, if I can achieve that, then I'll know I'm somebody. It's like that scene in Rocky when he's talking to Adrian and he has a whole conversation about the fact that he's going to fight Apollo Creed. And he says, look, nobody's ever gone the full 10 rounds with this guy. No one's ever been able to stand toe-to-toe with him and win. And if I could just accomplish that, if I could go the distance, if that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life that I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. See, Rocky epitomizes the way that we view our life. Got to try to find my meaning and my value in something. And Jesus says to you, don't just look for another means through which to find your identity, another means of your own construction, but rather find a whole new way. Lose the old identity completely and find your value in me and in the gospel. And I love that in verse 35, he goes so far as to say, as to say, and the gospel. If you die for me and if you die for the gospel. He's not just saying, find your identity in religion, in some vague notion of who God is, in some ambiguous religious spirituality where you're just trading one identity in a broken thing for another identity in a broken thing. He's saying, take up your cross. Realize that the path of your discipleship inherently is one that includes suffering. And by virtue of saying that, he's saying, find your identity in the finished work of Jesus. Stop trying to create your own identity. You already have it in Christ. And I wonder how practically we take instructions like this in our life. If we were put into a circumstance where we actually had to make the determination as to whether or not we were going to acknowledge and confess our belief in Jesus Christ as God, as the only means for salvation and hope in this life, and live... rather, or die, if we, were, if we were in a position where we had to confess those things at the cost of our own life, how would we respond? And that's a heavy question, and I don't think it's a question that we should answer very quickly. But if you were put into a circumstance where you, where you had to respond, do you actually confess and believe in Jesus Christ as your only Savior? And if you say yes, your life is ended now, what would our response be? It's been the the daily life of millions upon millions of our brothers and sisters all around the world. And by no means are we guaranteed that we will not face a similar choice. 
And Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, do you want, do you prefer, are you pursuing honor now and choosing shame on the day of judgment? Or are you willing to endure shame now and receive honor in the day of judgment? Ultimately, Jesus is putting forward a question of what you value the most, the applause of man or the approval of God. Because to be ashamed of Jesus and his words is to look at his sacrifice and his promises and say, no thanks. It's to reject the teaching and the instruction of God when the world around you says, you can't really believe that, can you? This antiquated old book? It's the temptation to pursue the privatization of our own faith to the point where your life and your words are indistinguishable from the lost folks around you. Flannery O'Connor, writing in the earlier 20th century, wrote it this way. She said, push back against the age as hard as it pushes against you. What people don't realize is how much religion costs. They think faith is a big electric blanket when, of course, it is the cross. Are you willing to say, when it comes to my faith in Jesus Christ, I refuse to give in to the temptation of momentary and fleeting affirmation of a lost people, choosing instead to cling to a Savior that cannot be taken away, even in death? Now, ultimately, what enables us to follow Christ in this way? Because if all we're talking about here is the grit of our own soul, our ability to white-knuckle our way through difficulty, even through persecution, inevitably that will fail us. So what then enables this kind of whole devotion to a new identity given solely by God, one where we, where we take up our cross, where we deny ourselves, where we follow him? We find it once again in verse 31. I want you to listen to these words. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now notice that Jesus doesn't say the Son of Man will suffer. It's not pure prophecy. He's saying in order for this to be effectual, in order for this to actually have a, a lasting impact in your life and in your soul, the Son of Man must suffer. So why did Jesus take it so seriously when Peter suggested that there was another method by which he could be the Messiah? Because for Jesus to follow that impulse or to follow that temptation would have been to leave us in hell And there's a crucial distinction. It's mentioned twice here. Jesus is saying, I have to die. It's necessary that I die. Your life and this world cannot be renewed unless I die. It's ultimately what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, when he says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since therefore we have now been justified, made right, perfectly holy in God's sight by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. He's saying you're justified through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that you and I stand before God acceptable, spotless, pure, without sin, that God looks at you and says there is no sin in that man or woman because all of it went on Jesus Christ at the cross. But you are just in his sight. That all the rebellion and all the idolatry that marks us as broken, sinful people has been removed and God now sees you in the same way that he sees his own son perfect. He says we've been justified by his blood. Not justified by your religiosity, not justified by your worthiness or your good decisions or your bad decisions or your morality. You are justified by an act of God himself. You have not earned your standing. He gave you your standing. Because Jesus the Christ, this Messiah, died, you are brought close. The love of God was such a part of Jesus Christ's identity that he had to die to bring you salvation. It's not an act of your will or of your self-determination or your good name. The reason you can follow Christ is because Christ enables you to follow him. See, Jesus had a clear identity. As God, he was worthy of worship, of praise, of glory, of a perfect and righteous worship. He deserved to be high and lifted up. But he gave up his identity and took on the penalty of your sins so that you could have a new identity in him. And the question Jesus asks and the question we must answer is quite literally, what in this world is more important than your soul? What would you be willing to take at the cost of your soul? Jesus Christ's love for you is so deep that he gave everything for your soul. Because he's given you a new identity in him, he now enables you to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow. That he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And all this ends in chapter 9, verse 1, where it says that there are some people who are standing there that day who are going to see all of these things take place. He says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And that's a reference, by the way, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said, look, you're not going to understand everything that I'm saying right now, but at some point what's going to happen is you're going to see me rise from the dead. It is the guarantee, the down payment on your salvation. It is the promise that you will never taste the second death That of course in this life you will taste death, but you will never as a believer in Jesus Christ who's put your whole faith and trust in the completed work of Jesus, you will never taste that second death. Hell, apart from God. And that Jesus accomplished all of that for you so that we can stand in days of trials and uncertainties and even persecution 
But we're only able to do that if we answer the question, who do you say that I am? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for texts that challenge us to our core, that challenge our presumptions about your nature and your character, about what you call us to do. And God, while sometimes it's not fun to look at heavy texts, we thank you that they're there. We thank you that at the end of the day, we as believers are not hopeless. That when the world seems dark and when it seems most lost, that you have already purchased and guaranteed the victory. That our eternity is secure in you, come what may in this life. So God, we pray that we would trust in your goodness, in your salvation, in the promises of your presence, to be faithful disciples of you in whatever it is that you call us to in our lives. And we'll give you all the praise and the honor and the glory for it. In Jesus' name.